My name is J.W. Oker. I'm an author, and I like to go out and look for weird stuff. I call it oddity. For more than a decade, I've sought out oddities of nature, oddities of art, oddities of culture and history. I believe that within a tank or two of gas, of any point in this country, is some seriously cool oddity, and that we all should go check it out. This is Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast. It's easy to get lulled into forgetting how strange and eerie plants can be. We talk about watching the grass grow, stopping and smelling the roses, tiptoeing through the tulips. Heck, we domesticate them on little trellises in our backyard gardens. But this planet is full of extremely odd plants, and I've seen a few in my day. Like the time I found a swamp full of carnivorous lilies hiding behind a rest stop on the Oregon coast. Or the time here in New Hampshire that I saw a seven-foot-tall, phallus-shaped flower that smelled like a dead body. Let me tell you about them. And let's start with the cobra lilies. One of the coldest destroyers of childhood innocence, one of the greatest contributors to adult disillusionment, one of the most disheartening facts of human existence is that carnivorous plants are not as cool as they should be. But it's not their fault. We of the animal sort grow up with stories of exotic, giant, man-eating monstrosities that move fast and populate dense island jungles or alien worlds, and every once in a while make it into our cities to sing to us in crazy baritones while ingesting sadistic dentists. And while some rare species might passively ingest a small bird or rodent, the reality of carnivorous plants is mundane. It usually consists of a tiny pool of digestive enzymes and insect parts. Even the fabled Venus flytrap is nothing but a group of twitching leaves that can be bought off Amazon.com. They're also not that exotic. They're pretty common in the United States. I once came across pitcher plants in a bog in New Hampshire, which is perhaps the most non-exotic place in the country. The plants are just tiny green cups sticking up through the moss with bits of insect parts floating inside them. Apparently, bogs are where most carnivorous plants grow. The general theory on their unique adaptation is that because these plants cannot cull nitrogen from those low-nutrient swamps, they evolved a mechanism for pulling the nitrates they needed out of the abundant insect life that can be found in that type of ecosystem. It's like every single survival show on television. If you can't find real food, you eat bugs. However, my trip to Darlington State Park near Florence, Oregon, restored my wonder at these incredible organisms. We were just a few days into a West Coast road trip that started in Seattle, and I was in the process of falling in love with the foggy, rocky, goony Oregon coast. We had explored the beach wreckage of the 19th century merchant ship, the Peter Iredale. We had visited Haystack Rock with its gorgeous tide pools full of orange and purple starfish. And we needed a bathroom break. There was a rest stop on Mercer Lake Road, seconds off the Oregon Coast Highway. Turns out it was also a small park. And that park was created for one purpose only to protect the rare species of carnivorous plant that proliferates there, the cobra lily. That's right, it sounds like a cartoon villainous, but that's its name, cobra lily. This species can only be found on the western coast of the United States. They grow to about a foot and a half tall and feature a flaring hood in mottled green and red from which dangle two fang-like leaves. It is that serpentine appearance that gives them the name lily. Just kidding, cobra. The cobra lily is a species of the pitcher plant that I talked about earlier 
meaning that it uses nectar to entice bugs into the hollow trap of its maw. The insect is then ensnared inside the plant by a system of downward-pointing hairs, slippery walls, and confusing internal topography. Prey can check out anytime they like, but they can never leave. If you're driving the Oregon coast, you have to stop at Darlington State Park. It's an extremely convenient stop and takes only minutes to experience. The relevant areas of the park basically consists of a rest area, a parking lot, and a short boardwalk that winds its way out into the bog, where you'll see large clusters of these tall tubular vegetables, slowly and surreptitiously digesting their panicked and thrashing meals. I took the path slowly, the boards echoing hollowly underneath my boots, almost like I was afraid to spook them, or afraid to be spooked by them. Maybe it's their large size, maybe it's the way they group together like schools of toothy piranha, but these cobra lilies actually did look somewhat predatory. I could imagine their hoods turning to follow my movements until, at some silent signal, they attack in unison, wrapping themselves around my limbs, pulling me to the ground, and reenacting that one scene in The Evil Dead that's hard to talk about. When nature finally runs amok, I'm sure it'll be the cobra lilies that start it. But, as cool as cobra lilies are, corpse flowers are cooler, and they're not even carnivorous. For decades, I had wanted to see a corpse flower in full bloom. It was on my top 10 list of oddities for a very long time. Nevertheless, I still almost missed my chance when it finally happened. I'd arrived at my home in New Hampshire at 2 a.m. after a 10-hour drive to the Mid-Atlantic for family reasons. As exhausted as I was, I couldn't sleep past 7 for some reason, so I got up and started doing all the things you usually do after a week away from home. Unpacking, washing clothes, cycling through the DVR, trying to find the cat... Just before 9 a.m., I got an email from a friend. It said, Hey, there's a corpse flower in bloom today at Dartmouth. Visitors are welcome till noon. And there were a lot of exclamation points in the message, as there should have been. It was a corpse flower in bloom an hour and a half away from my house. The moment was finally here. Now let's talk about these giant, stinky flowers. The scientific name for the corpse flower is Amorphophallus titanium. And yes, I practice pronouncing that. That basically means, and earmuff your children, please, giant, misshapen penis. Very, very odd. So it's named after dead bodies and dicks, which is a name I'm reserving for my next novel. People who want to avoid those connotations usually stick with the term Titan Arum. But the lurid names are pretty accurate. The plant is a giant green shaft wrapped at its base by a single large leaf called a spathe. The shaft itself can grow as tall as 10 feet, so it's basically what the jolly green giant hides under his leaf toga. When it blooms, the spathe opens to reveal the deep purple interior of the leaf, and that's when the flower emits a strong smell like rotting meat. And it does so to attract insects. However, despite its name, it's not a carnivorous plant, perhaps its only character flaw. It attracts those insects, so they will pollinate it. Corpse flowers are only native to western Sumatra so very rare. And their blooms are even rarer and impossible to predict. It takes around 10 years for a corpse flower to open for the first time, and then it can take anywhere from a couple of years to another decade for its next bloom, and it only blooms for 48 hours. So seeing and smelling a corpse flower bloom is all about being at the right place at the right time. And when my right place and right time came, I almost didn't go. When I got the email, I was hitting the wall as far as exhaustion goes, and doing the math had me squeezing in to see the corpse flower with only a little time to spare before the noon closing. 
It was also the last day of the bloom. But my wife Lindsay saved the day. She called me an idiot and pushed me right out the door. Dartmouth College is in Hanover, New Hampshire. The greenery that college is usually known for, of course, is ivy. But it so happened that in the greenhouse atop its life sciences center, they've been cultivating a monster. A monster named Morphe. You don't have to name your daffodils, but you must name your corpse flower. That's just the type of plant it is. After a pleasant drive north up Interstate 89, during which I broke every single speed limit, I pulled into the parking lot of the building with less than an hour to go before closing time. More than 50 people were queued up outside that entrance. But I can't call that bad. Something else that pushed me over the line that morning is that the bloom wasn't in a big city, where you'll find most of the institutions with the resources to throw at a 10-year botanical investment. Had I missed this opportunity, my next chance would probably be in New York City, where I'd have to contend with New York City crowds. But it was still technically a crowd. It took about an hour to make it into the building, along the various hallways inside, and to the pinch point, an elevator to the roof, and the Dartmouth greenhouse that was smaller than the living room of a McMansion. As soon as I exited the elevator, I smelled it. A corpse flower. Dead bodies, rotting meat, all the descriptors for what a corpse flower smells like are really disgusting. When I got there, the scent wasn't very strong, honestly, but it was palpable, sweet and meaty, and honestly, not really that foul. And that's when I realized that I'd never smelled a dead body before. Would that be how I describe the odor? Sweet and meaty and honestly not really that foul? I don't know. What's definite, though, is that I got used to it within 60 seconds and I didn't smell it at all, even when I was inches away from the flower. I'd later talked to one of the botanists on staff and she told me that she'd been watching Morphe through the night and that's when it was at its most smelly. At night, the flower actually heats up almost to the temperature of warm-blooded animals, which makes the smell much stronger. It also takes a lot of energy for a plant that size hence the rarity of the blooms. A line snaked around the interior wall of the small greenhouse, so I dutifully took my place in it, even though every instinct in me wanted to trample people to get to Morphe. Quickly, though, it was my time with the corpse flower. Morphe was about seven feet tall and, at the time, 13 years old. It was potted in a comically large flower pot that gave it a few more feet of height. Its first bloom was in 2011, so this was its second ponfar. A square hole had been sawn into its base like they were autopsying the corpse flower. The window revealed the tiny flowers hiding in that giant green shaft. Corpse flowers have both female and male flowers. The female flowers bloom first, attracting the insects, which then become trapped inside the spathe until the male flowers bloom later. On my visit, Morphe was already sprouting male flowers, so it was near the end of its bloom. The botanist who was attending it at the time reached inside and plucked one to show us one of those flowers up close. It's not something I would have called a flower had I seen it in the wild. It looked more like a fungus. And actually, it looked a lot like a tiny purple penis. It's just that kind of plant. Obviously, I didn't want to leave Morphe. Heck, I wanted to take it home with me, strapped to the roof of my Civic like an alternate universe Christmas tree. But the line of people behind me was backing up, so... After a quick wave to the webcam, through which my wife watched the proceedings back home, her dreams don't involve phallic plants, I exited the building. On the way out, the line was even longer, and they were still letting visitors inside, so it seemed that my blatant disregard for speed limits on the way up wasn't necessary. I can't believe I almost skipped that experience. I'm 
a dummy a lot of the time. However, a big reason that the devil on my shoulder was so vocal about skipping it is that these days, corpse flower blooms are more common across the country. That sounds ominous, like Triffid setting up for an attack. But the truth is that these amazing plants draw crowds with their smell more than they draw insects, so more and more facilities are raising them for that very reason. Although I guess we shouldn't rule out a Little Shop of Horror-style botanical uprising. That's right, I'm making two Little Shop of Horror references in this podcast. In fact, Morphe bloomed again, just two years later. And of course I went back, as I will the next time it blooms, and the next time, and the next time, and any time I'm near a corpse flower bloom. As should you. And the way to track corpse flower blooms across the country is just to set up a Google alert for the phrase corpse flower, which is what I've done, and it's the only Google alert that I have. Alright, now that we're five episodes into this podcast, it's time I do what all podcasters do. Beg for stuff. I'll do it fast though because I know you know the drill. This podcast needs your help, and you can help this podcast out by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. Lots of those pointy yellow things really help get the word out about this program. Also, posting about it on social media. If you tag me when you do it, I will retweet the heck out of that. And if you want to know more about my other projects, my books and my appearances and my articles, visit me at oddthingsiveseen.com. Thank you for listening to Odd Things I've Seen, the podcast.